0: Welcome to the ACO Show. I'm Josh Israel, a physician at Alidaid. We're a company that helps doctors around the country set up and run accountable care organizations. ACOs are a new model of care designed by Medicare to try to serve patients better and to improve the health of the population.
1: And I'm Joe Schunkweiler. I'm a physician by background, and I lead the adoption and training team here at Allidade. Today, you're going to hear an interview with Dr. Alex Blum. Alex is a pediatrician by background and the vice president of strategic partnerships here at Allidade and he talks a lot about what goes into a good value-based contract with payers. In other words, what makes a good deal between an insurance company and doctors where the doctors get paid for keeping patients healthy. Now that seems straightforward enough, and we can all agree that sounds like a good idea, but there are a lot of details that get complicated quickly, and that matter a lot when you're making these agreements.
0: One challenge for doctors is that if they have some patients in the older model of payment, what we call fee-for-service, where you just get paid for volume and doing more things, And some of your other patients are in what we're calling a value-based model where the doctor is paid for keeping the patients healthy. That's complicated. It's a challenging way to run a practice. So one of the strategies to get doctors more aligned and focused on the value-based care work that needs to get done is to help the doctors get as many of their patients as possible into a contract that really just focuses on health outcomes. And so you'll hear Alex talk about uh, his goals for that.
1: And a special thanks to our producers, Francis Bentley and Aaron Wang, and to Tim Andreasich for our theme music.
0: We are here today with Alex Blum, the Vice President of Strategic Partnerships here at Allade. Welcome, Alex. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So you are a physician by background. There's a lot of physicians here who either stopped practicing medicine or practice medicine some and moved over to this this kind of work. How did it come about for you that you stopped seeing patients and ended up here at Allidade?
2: Um, So I still see patients about twice a month, two afternoons a month. Um, and I chose early on in my medical school career. Um, to move to a job that would uh, orient me to work on population health so I went to Howard University College of Medicine uh, for med school and very quickly saw that the um, social determinants of health there were drivers in the community in the laws that kind of govern the way we live that were affecting my patients lives Um, and I wanted to dedicate my, my life to work to address those so um, I sought out a set of experiences and trainings uh, that kind of gave me the skills to be able to position myself uh, to be able to work in a place like this. So, just very briefly, I, I went to Howard. Uh, from there, I decided to, I'm a pediatrician. So, I sought out uh, a residency program that was dedicated towards teaching uh, concepts of working with communities and com- community based participatory research at, at UCLA. Um, from there, I was an organizer on the Obama campaign in 2008. Um, and I did that because I thought if he were uh, elected, he had promised to expand uh, health insurance coverage, and I thought that was the best thing as a physician that mm-hmm. I could do for my patients. Um, and then I had an advocacy experience where I helped start out uh, an organization where physicians helped impact the health care reform bill at the time to become law. And um, from there, felt like kind of limited as an advocate, so went and got further training and got a master's in public health, uh, health services research. That was fellowship number one, then fellowship number two. I worked in the federal government, um, both at the National Institutes of Health and then the Innovation Center at CMS, which was like a really is a really fantastic R and D shop that funds healthcare reform uh, experiments. And then from there, jumped to a health insurance company and helped start. Um, a small startup health insurance company in Maryland, and then from there, uh, worked uh, at Allidate.
0: So really just a straight shot, just clean and <laughs> It's been clean a, bit, and
2: obvious. a bit meandering, yeah. uh, but a set of experiences. It's kind of like giving me a skill set that, that's allowed me to kind of do the job that I do.
1: One of the great things about doing this podcast is that we've gotten to know our coworkers really well. Uh, and I had no idea you'd done like half of that stuff. Is that right? Yeah, I didn't know you had been part of the campaign or anything like that. So uh, that was really cool. Um, so leading strategic partnerships here, uh, what does that entail? Sort of an opaque uh, term, strategic partnerships.
2: Yeah, so the the company is focused on, as, as you guys well know, but for the listening audience, of aggregating providers and enrolling them into the Medicare Shared Savings Program. So docs are accountable for, for total cost on their Medicare patients. But for any of our providers, their Medicare patients really only um, entails about a third of their, their patients. So uh, part of the strategic partnerships we form are with the health insurance companies, the payers that account for the other seventy percent of any one provider's patients panel. So I will go um, pitch, discuss with payers that um, you know we have a set of providers in their state, and they should think about doing uh, signing accountable care contracts with us. So that's that's one form of a strategic partnership is uh, is the negotiation. Uh, signing of an ACO agreement with a a non-Medicare payer, a commercial, what we would call a commercial payer. Uh, And then we have kind of a second set of strategic partnerships we form, and those are with other third-party entities, other companies that help augment our model, whether or not it's like, for example, uh, a company that might help improve our access to data Mm -hmm. so that our docs uh, have better insight uh, into... um, the the care that the patients are, are receiving so uh, the other form of strategic partnerships are, are those uh, partnerships we form that increase the odds that we would get savings and improve health for, for our uh, patients. That's interesting because
1: it really gets into the white space of what we're doing here. So you know we're already working at the uh, very leading edge in terms of value-based care if the uh, uh, at the government payer level with MSSP, but there's so many other markets out there, and you must get to see a really interesting view into those additional markets, whether it's commercial or otherwise.
2: Yeah, no, it's it's. Uh, I for I, I just love that aspect of my job of being able to kind of travel and interact with payers, uh, both regionally and, and nationally. And there's just huge variation uh, across these other insurance companies. So basically. We have uh, either f- formalized partnerships with every national payer or uh, are in the process of, of doing that. And every one of them has dedicated teams of people to try to figure out how do you move providers who are paid fee-for-service into value-based contracts. Um, so quick little story, like the first week I started at Allidade, I went with our CEO Farzad to, to Hopkins, Minnesota, to the um, uh, United Healthcare headquarters, mm-hmm. um, and um, with Farzad, <clears throat> excuse me, we um, weren't sure if United uh, exactly knew what an ACO deal was. So we had slides to explain what what an ACO agreement is. Uh, needless to say, we quickly learned that United not only understood what a basic ACO agreement is; they had whole teams uh, of people kind of mm-hmm. dedicated to this. So. Um, it is fascinating to see the variation across insurance, despite the fact that everyone is trying to figure out how do you move providers towards value-based contracting arrangements, to see huge variation both in kind of culturally how they've undertaken that uh, and also just their approach to, to working in, in kind of different takes on physician engagement.
0: So when you're setting up these partnerships, is there any standard contract, you know, standard agreement? Can you ever make it boilerplate or is each sort of partnership and agreement just very different?
2: Yeah, I think one of the, the, the answer is yes. And so one of the barriers, so we, part of the value we bring to a payer is we're aggregating these small independent providers, exactly those providers that are uh, for payers kind of the most challenging to get into these contracts because by definition, when you have like, when you're a small when you're a small provider, um, you have very few of those of those payers, patients. Um, so, you know, a payer may uh, be limited in their capacity mm-hmm. to go out to each individual uh, provider and in contract with them. Um, so, then one of the barriers for an independent provider to get into one of these agreements is the negotiation process. Like we didn't learn this in med school, mm-hmm. um, and nor do you really have time when you're seeing patients every twenty minutes to like. Sit down with the contract and figure out well, like what are the best financial terms to for the arrangement. Um, so, you know, you know, I think what we're trying part of what we're trying to do is um, obviously negotiate the best uh, contract in in regards for our providers, but also kind of align incentives between provider um, and and payer. And part of um, I think as we move to scale this across the country that we're looking to do is once we have a templated contract that kind of meets those goals, then um, to scale that and make that contract kind of applicable in, in other states where we recognize that payers often, um, the way that they control their, their profit and loss margins is, is very much dictated at, at the region or, or the state level. So there is some fluctuations um, that have to happen with certain economic terms of the contract, but once you get that base agreement, which we've uh, been able to do, to do with now, uh, one payer and looks like we'll, we'll in the next month or two be able to do this with a couple of payers, uh, we'll, we'll be able to kind of scale that um, to, to other states. And I think the idea here is in Medicare, it's an application process to get into MSSP. That's a very low bar to get providers. You you have to the the bar there is you have to have enough providers to aggregate into a pool and basically apply to a standard program where the same, you know, the same economic terms are the same in Florida as they are in Kansas for our, our uh, MSSP providers. Um, I think that's kind of the general direction we need to be going on the commercial mm-hmm. side as well. Is get get the contract good enough. And, um, and and try to get some uniformity and, and, and kind of scale it to other states.
0: Now at Allaide we we try really hard to make our decisions in line with things always being good for doctors, good for patients, good for society. Beyond those things, do you have a set of guiding principles as you go go about setting up partnerships? Yes
2: uh, we do. And um, I've written about this uh, with our CEO uh, and Cha- Sean Kavanaugh, who's, who's our chief administrative officer, and Travis Broome, uh, who, who oversaw uh, Medicare before coming here, and, and Travis Broome, who uh, oversees our policy shop. Um, so, you know, we take a principal approach when we negotiate these contracts. So, first and foremost, we try to align incentives across the, the payer and provider. Uh, And So there's certain economic terms, for example, like we will point out in contracts to say, okay, that may be good for you as the payer in the short term, but really that threatens kind of the sustainability of the contract in the long term. So we're looking in a negotiation isn't to say, you know, you say A, I say C, therefore we should land at B. It's much more like, what are the principles that we can agree to that kind of drive our decision making? Again, a second principle I would say is like that the savings that happen because of the hard work that the providers are doing to drive down costs and, and, and the quality improvement, those savings should be shared equitably uh, between a, a payer and a provider. So again, it isn't a, it isn't a negotiation around, our, you say this number, I say that number of like the savings that should be shared, but like let's really think about, um, you need to make that pool of money generous enough that the potential savings, kind of the pot of money at the end of the rainbow has to be generous enough enough to get providers to really dedicate themselves and and their office staff to to dedicate themselves to this hard work to do the practice transformation, the behavioral change has has to be motivated by that. So there needs to be enough savings there. Um, And again, I think kind of third principle is that these contracts need to be structured with an eye towards sustainability. it does not work to have a contract uh, where there might be um, some kind of short-term game either for the payer or the provider. Frankly, uh, where in the long run the contract doesn't work for the payer, it doesn't work for the provider. Like we need to be setting these up in a way where all parties win uh, and continue to win over kind of the life of the contract. Uh, th- those are those are kind of some key. There there are a couple more, and I point you to the health affairs article that we wrote, uh, the blog on this. Um, there are a couple more that we, we talk about.
0: No, that makes a lot of sense, in the in the sense that if you give the doctors a contract that the uh, the insurers it favors the insurers too much. You know, they win in the short term, but they're not going to have partners working towards this difficult goal. So that's it's nice. Nice that you all are able to think about that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you one example on this. Like, so there's 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 a lot of alignment and kind of oh, alignment in what we do. So, like I already said, like the payers really value the fact that we can group together these small independent providers. Those are the hardest to get uh, providers to get into these sort of arrangements for payers. So there's a natural kind of alignment. Allidade's business model is to, uh, we make our money when when costs are reduced and, and health is improved because there's a savings there that accrues, part of it stays with the payers, part of, it, part of it goes to the ACO. We typically pass the majority to our providers and then we take some. like that's the basic Mm -hmm. business business model, that completely aligns incentives because we win, Mm -hmm. when the payers win, when our providers win, and you do that at scale, then patients win. Because you do it at scale, premiums should come down uh, as part of that as well. And the whole thing is premised on quality improvement, so patients should be winning as well. Mm -hmm. But there are opportunities for misalignment uh, as well. So um, I'll give you kind of a classic one in uh, the contracts that we negotiate where Uh, The short term, where I have seen payers um, propose deals that kind of allow them to win in the the short term, but uh, but threaten the long term. And the classic one is um, a rebasing of 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 the benchmark. So every contract, like we mentioned, has starts with an attributed population, a cohort of patients that has a cost associated with them, and so that starting point benchmark uh, in in Medicare uh, typically. Travels unchanged for for a number of years mm-hmm. on the commercial side though Many payers will say that that the starting point benchmark should be the historic cost of providers So let's look back 12 months see what the the cost for those patients cost and then use that as the starting point So next year if there's a cost reduction the payer will say if they use this methodology, okay Well, let's look backwards at what happened in the last 12 months. Oh your cost can't reduced so we're gonna notch we're gonna ratchet down the starting, you started up here, we're gonna take it down a couple steps down here, that's your new harder to reach starting point. Oh, the second year of the contract, you also reduce cost, well, it's gonna ratchet down. So that may work uh, in the short term for uh, a payer because they want to pay for improvement, they wanna see uh, a cost reduction, but you can't fast forward that 10 years and have year over year, we call that the death spiral. Mm -hmm. where you have a diminishing return on a, on a contract, that doesn't that kind of structure doesn't work. And frankly, payers don't typically want that either uh, in a long-term uh, contractual relationship because eventually you have demoralized providers that don't want to opt in to those kind of arrangements.
0: I'm a little surprised to hear you say that the, the payers like it, that you're able to aggregate these physicians. I, I would have pictured it more as sort of like a coal company not wanting the union to come in and give these independent practices any negotiating leverage.
2: Well, I think there's a couple things at play. One is that payers are are fully bought in to these value-based arrangements. They have seen their cost, the the providers, where this works, meaning like the providers are truly engaged uh, in these sort of arrangements and empowered like we do, empowered with data to drive down costs, payers are starting to see see their cost curves bend. Um, And at the same time, They have limited staff to go out and contract with providers and they don't have an army of people necessarily to do provider engagement and so to travel to the like four corners of kansas can be very challenging for a payer in kansas um so that is real value that we bring where i suspect if i were a payer i would be less thrilled uh if allidade were coming to me and saying okay well I have now aggregated all your providers in Kansas and now I want to change their fee-for-service rate Mm -hmm. and double it Uh, that would make me um, not super happy Mm -hmm. if I were a payer Uh, and that isn't what we do it's the opposite of our model Um, we are a population health company um, and we're looking to again create incentives to do behavior change to do practice transformation and so you have to have enough money at the gain share at the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow to incentivize behavior change and fee-for-service just isn't it like that's that fee-for-service as we all understand here is is rewards uh the wrong things it rewards services and doing more and faster
1: what about the risk relationship at play in the typical contract you know we've spent a lot of time at allidate thinking about the appropriate uh you know, uh, understanding the risk of upside and downside, downside meaning if you are over the cost benchmark that you owe money back in an MSSP contract or others. Um, is there a standard risk relationship? How much of that is on the table when you're doing the negotiation? I mean, everything's probably on the table in yeah. <laughs> some of these negotiations.
2: So we, we typically um, like to start any kind of arrangement in an upside only uh, deal, meaning where doctors have the potential to make money if there's cost savings, but they're not necessarily on the hook if any of the costs were to rise. And there's a number of reasons for that. Like, we just, it takes a little bit of time to take in the data from a payer and make it useful to be able to use for a provider. Um, part of it is uh, allowing providers to kind of have a get to know you period with understanding uh, how the contract works and what quality measures are used. Uh, but we believe that contracts should eventually move um, to include downside risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and the principle that we use, and, and we've written about this, is uh, that the risk should be great enough to motivate real change, but not so large to threaten the financial viability of any financial practice. Mm-hmm. We're, we're dealing with small independent provider practices. Like I remember a doc I talked to, one of our docs in our ACO ACO in um in uh, New Orleans or excuse me in um, Lafayette uh, Louisiana who took over he himself was probably in the 60s he took over his dad's practice he was like the family practitioner in it was a small town actually outside of Lafayette he was the family doc in his community and they had been for generations we can't establish a downside risk agreement that could threaten his practice, you know what I mean, if costs were to rise one year or, or over a couple years. Um, but at the same time, we believe in establishing contracts that motivate uh, providers to, to want to improve health and, and drive down costs. Do you feel uh, like it's
1: an opportunity to do in, uh, on a smaller scale, some of the things we would love to see more in the uh, larger mssp contracts you know like that's we, we've talked a lot here internally and others will hear on this podcast um you know what the wish list would be you know we saw it with with new rules and proposed rules um do you feel like you get to implement a little bit of that with each negotiation
2: yes yeah, so that, that's a great question so um the answer is yes we have partners um there's variability across partners so certain partners uh, have a program that they've spent a lot of time working on, uh, often kind of uh, crafted uh, from the corporate team, and it's implemented by the market team. So those those payer provider those those excuse me those payers uh, aren't looking to like innovate necessarily or or change the program. They have kind of established program, but we have other uh, pair partners who absolutely are trying to think innovatively around what is the benchmark we use? What is that starting cost point we use? Should it be the historic cost like we, we discussed, like the provider's past 12 months cost, or should it be a comparison to the regional market average? Like, should we compare one doc's cost and reward them compared to their neighbor's uh, cost? Um, you know, should we think, How should we think about quality measurements? We have certain payers that literally have 26 quality measures by which they kind of measure performance mm-hmm. for our docs. And and we have other payers who are saying, you know, you have brought to us a number of high quality providers, like proven through their performance over the last, last number of years. Let's actually just think anew about like, how do we, we have been measuring quality this way. Let's think anew about ways to measure quality. Um, so those are those are some of the most fun conversations. Is trying to think creatively uh, with our our payer partners around how how best to kind of establish these programs so it, it works for both yeah. payer and provider.
1: Yeah, I can imagine that's uh, um, an interesting way to put into action some of the more theoretical academic sides of of what we're talking about here, and, and that it actually plays out into these real interactions with you know companies that have boards and are. You know, publicly traded in some cases. That's so there's right. a lot of the accountability chain is you know goes both ways. So it's it's very cool to hear about. Um, so given that this is such a complex, multifactorial process that you're undertaking, it sounds uh, very intimidating just to hear you discuss it and all the pieces that go in. Who and I, I should say one of the neat things that we get to do on this podcast on the ACO show is give folks a view into how Allemade works as a startup um, and at this stage in our company. So one of those things is who's on what team, who does what, how those teams work together. Um, Who do you, I can't imagine it's just you out with your uh, briefcase and contracts, <laughs> marking these up. So who, who do you, who's on your team? Who do you work with? How does that work without the throughout the rest of uh, Alidaid?
2: Sure. Um, so Sean Cavanaugh uh, leads the team. Formerly uh, ran Medicare, uh, came to Allendale as our Chief Administrative Officer. So it brings with them a breadth of experience uh, around uh, Medicare and uh, relationships uh, with payers as well. There's there's. Uh, two other people on my team that are absolutely helping uh, lead on some of these contract negotiations uh, with me. Um, so this is definitely uh, very much a team effort. And then every day, the the part of the negotiation process and establishing these partnerships relies on other teams within Alldate. So for example, um, you all have talked to uh, Matt Kendall and uh, Kim Lynch who kind of lead, Uh, the uh, network of our providers and so we very much like we can't get uh, one of these ACO agreements with a payer unless we have enough providers in any one market to show payers Mm -hmm. look we care for enough of your patients and actually therefore there's enough dollars at play here to meet actuarial significance, so we completely depend on. We actually just basically follow the lead of our field team, those that are building the networks, and uh, and then rely on some of the physician leadership to help uh, who we engage in the negotiations to to help with those uh, ne- those negati- negotiation negotiations negotiations with payers. Every day, I work with our legal team, um, so they're really helpful. Um, I've. I've worked at a number of companies now, and I find that our legal team uh, is superb in their efforts to always try to figure out like how to work to yes, to figure out solutions to uh, problems. I just was on a call this morning where our legal team was basically helping a national payer's legal counsel kind of think through problems because we've seen we've seen this now. We've done 15 of these agreements, so we've seen how other payers have done it. So um, that that can be very helpful. Work very closely with our finance team uh, as well to make sure um, the agreements that we're negotiating kind of meet uh, our financial uh, needs as well. Um, boy, I don't know. It basically basically touches like every part of our company. I mean, our tech. We totally rely on our tech team. Part of what what we're selling uh, to uh, a payer is that we can take in data from a payer and make it actionable at point of service to change workflows that's premised on the fact that we have a population health tool that is useful and adds value um, and so uh, our tech team will sometimes uh, demo the population health tool for payers for and and we completely rely on on their uh, building out this tool um, to to be excellent.
1: Have you found that that data argument is particularly compelling for the for the average payer?
2: Well it's what made me join the company. <laughs> like right. And I remember my first conversation, I have with Farzad, like many people in the company, our CEO, uh, he he took uh, me on a classic uh, walk and talk, uh, which is me trying to sprint behind him mm-hmm. as he pummeled me with questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he was like, okay, at the end of it, he's like, let me just show you something. And he showed me the, the tool. I had come from a payer where I was used to Our concept around physician engagement was to basically provide gap lists to to providers, which are like, here are your patients that are missing colonoscopies, mammographies, or these screening tests, these screening uh, services that should have been done. Here, go, go close these gaps, fix this, Um, and that doesn't address the underlying problem, which is like, work the the actual workflows within a practice need to change to be able to. to increase uh, the the um, preventive services that that patients are getting, and really you need to have uh, access to data at that point of service, both to when a patient is coming in your door to, to be able to close the, the gaps, but also on, uh, allow the data to be used by the front office staff to reach out to those patients. Um, so when we show when we explain this to our payer partners, um, they're typically blown away. Like. The easiest conversations I have are with our, our clinician, the clinician leaders at a payer because it's really, I mean, the, the, the tool sells itself. Everyone is trying to, every payer is trying to crack the nut on how you do provider engagement and how you empower providers with data so they can proactively reach out to the at-risk and high-risk patients, certain large health systems. Are getting good at this, and they have money to hire teams of people to do this and to build out tech tools. What we're doing is empowering small independent providers in typically ignored areas of the country uh, to be have a data-driven approach, and it's it's uh, part of what makes my job a joy. And I think uh, when payers get a chance to see it, that it like sells itself. Alex, as you know from, from
1: our discussions, uh, both formally when I was first joining the company and, and you know, subsequently informally, um, you know, I am a physician as well and am and, and relatively new to the startup space. Um, but I would love to hear what surprised you about being at a startup, either this one or, or it sounds like you've had some other uh, startup in quotes experience as well.
2: So, I, I love working for startups. So, I've, I've worked on uh, this would be my fourth, what I would consider my fourth startup. So, again, I worked on the Obama campaign in 08, which is the, you know, campaigns are the ultimate startup. They mm-hmm. become million mm-hmm. dollar businesses, especially national campaigns, become million dollar businesses within months mm-hmm. uh, with huge infrastructures. And I found that to be very exciting. Uh, helped start a physician organization that also became a very large uh, nationwide presence. Uh, and then worked at a startup health insurance company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now Allidate. So I love uh, the kind of white hot pace uh, of a startup. I think um, the intensity is is really exciting. It uh, works best when you have good teamwork. And so uh, what one thing I, I particularly love about being at Allidate is that it attracts just a very thoughtful, but yet fun uh, person. And uh, it's part of the joy of working here is, is kind of the team of people um, that's smart, and cha- they challenge each other in a very um, uh, kind of uh, egalitarian, thoughtful way. is is, is enjoyable, um, and I like the fact that when you're starting a company, like quick, small decisions have these kind of outsized import uh, in in the in the company as well. And I I think it forces thoughtful but very quick decision making that that I find exciting. Um, I find. There's certain uh, uncertainty in working at a startup that can both be comforting. Uh, maybe Josh, you can you can give me the psychi- psychiatric <laughs> kind of perspective on this. Uh, but the uncertainty is both exciting and kind of like um, challenging at times as well. So in a startup, you don't have very well necessarily very well defined roles and responsibilities. So. I remember when I interviewed for the job and I, I talked to uh, Bob Kocher, a board member about the job. He's like, yeah, just start. And it's not, you know, just start doing the work. Who knows what you'll end up doing at the mm-hmm. company? Cause like, you know, things change so quickly. Yeah. And it the, the company um, has almost quadrupled since I joined the company. And you've seen people's roles um, get more um, kind of professionalized and specific in what they focus on as as we bring on other people. but. Uh, I find that uncertainty exciting because you can partially kind of define what you're what you're doing as well as, as what you want to do but uh, also a little discomforting but I think the discomfort is actually kind of a part of the excitement and, and fun
1: yeah I, I found the same thing that it's particularly coming from uh, clinical medicine where your pathway even though every day may be uh Crazy or unpredictable, your long term pathway is very predictable, Mm -hmm. um, almost to the point where you don't. um, You know, I never had aspirations to do anything like this when I was in medical school. uh, And to think back, to sort of time travel back and think I would have been a private practice or academic surgeon by now, you know, well ensconced and a pretty predictable career path. You know, until I retire. Uh, so yeah, I, I completely understand. That. I love what you said about the pacing. And when I interview uh, new team members, because we are growing really quickly, um, that are coming from larger companies, um, I say, you know, the pace is something you have to be ready for. You know, we're uh, when we're in the fourth quarter of the year and things are really kicking up. Now I know on the with some of the commercial contract side. You have a different timeline, but for MSSP, the fourth quarter can be very, very busy, uh, and uh, and I say the same thing then when I'm talking to garage stage type startup folks that I'm recruiting, which is what the job I came from immediately before this. That even though we're a bigger company and we're well funded, well run, we have you know a lot of professionalized you know, things here, which sounds like has been a big transition for you coming on pretty early in the process there are still times where we are going at that pace, like we're trying to build something in our garage somewhere, you know, so you get the best of both worlds at this stage in the company.
2: Yeah, I, I love that. I, I, and I have for every startup I've worked at, I love the multitasking, the juggling, not letting a ball hit the ground. Um, it's part of the fun. Yeah.
0: Given all the things that you couldn't have predicted coming here, do you think being a physician helped you with some of those? And you know, does it still play a role in your day-to-day work?
2: Yes, it does. So, um, in a couple ways. So, one is just in the conversations with payers. Uh, it is helpful, I think, uh, to be able to speak the clinical voice when we're discussing and negotiating a contract. So, uh, whether or not it's a payer who's um, trying to think through with us, how do you measure quality? Uh, I think that does help um, that I both kind of have a health services. Research background, but also can speak to it from as a physician who sees patients. Uh, what it means to be measured by quality and how many quality measures, for example, should be used. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that helps. Um, you know, I think uh, part of being a primary care doc, which is what I am, um, is relies on empowering your patient to take um, to take ownership of their health and try to improve their health, and in Pediatrics, it's it's also empowering the pa- the parents sure. to like uh, improve the health of their kids, and um, similarly, <laughs> stay with me here. In a negotiation with a payer, um, you too are trying to identify kind of the goals of what the the payer is trying to to accomplish, and trying to have a conversation where you're trying to get everyone to understand like what is it we're trying to accomplish to try to get people to move to towards like a middle ground. It actually. It may sound a little fluffy, but it actually very much is like a similar uh, kind of conversation uh, that you're having.
0: You don't give them a sticker after a good negotiation. Or a lollipop. Yeah. Least.
1: Hand puppet. My pediatrician <laughs> growing up had this like a hand puppet. That's better awesome.
2: than lollipops. Yeah, it's awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, he was exceptional. You know, uh, Do you miss that? Did, like, Just uh, in terms
2: of... The hugs, the, <laughs> the hugs, right. yeah, the hugs. Yeah, I mean, it's a, seriously. Why, yeah. what, why do pediatricians like yeah. what the immediate gratification, right? Of like uh, being able to help a child stay healthy or become healthier is like there is immediate gratification in that. That's um, you don't get <laughs> in right. the same way with uh, this job. It, it uh, you know, my gratification is more. Um, in a in a movement that we're all part of, mm-hmm. right, and trying to empower primary care docs to to take uh, control and, and provide the best health uh, care that they can provide to their patients. I think part of what we're trying to accomplish is um, is empowering primary care, but also, you know, I think a secondary benefit is making the career path of into primary care more attractive mm-hmm. uh, for for students as well. So um, there may be some trickle over effect where uh, if Primary care becomes kind of the more attractive chosen path for med students. That it may open people's eyes uh, to pediatrics as well, and maybe maybe down the road, it, the ECO movement will become more common in 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 peds as well.
1: In that vein, as you think about you know what you do now differently than what you did previously, um, uh, we've been asking each guest what value-based care means to them. Uh, and you know, the, it's a, a phrase that is very powerful, but also has many people uh, define it differently. So mm-hmm. I'd love to hear what that means to you, Alex.
2: If you don't mind, I'm, I will first start by defining what it is not. Mm-hmm. So. Go for it. Uh, no, no
0: one's done that yet. Okay. Go ahead. Um, a lot so, of things come to mind.
2: <laughs> so my wife is an OBGYN, and I watched her for years as a clinician. Spend hours at night checking on labs and signing off on normal labs. So you know, as a clinician, it's important to stay on top of your patients' labs. But I, but she would, she was required to sign off on and click, and she was measured on how quickly she would click off on the normal lab values, and how quickly she would finish her notes. Um, that plus her RVUs was the sole measure for, uh, in the eyes of her health system and her medical director, how good of a doctor she was. Wow turnaround time on normal labs, turnaround time on signing off on clinical notes and her RVUs. There was no focus at all on whether or not she was improving the health of her patients or reducing the cost of her patients. And that leads to burnout. It did in my wife's case and um, and it does for many physicians. So um, value-based care is care that rewards the reduction of cost and um, An improvement of health of of a, of a provider of a physician's patients and um and the way you um the way you allow providers to kind of win within that kind of financial arrangement is you give them the data that empowers them to act and reach out to the high-risk and at-risk patients and then you give them the the people consultative partnership services that we provide in the office um, and that's a that's a winning solution like you do that at scale we will have many more people going into primary care. We will have cost reductions because you have you have supercharged docs across the country, uh, improving health and driving down costs for their their patients.
0: All right. Well, for our last question, what I want to know is, um, you know, we're a national company. We're used to having a web web conferences with people all over the country, and every now and then a kid will wander into the picture frame or a dog will bark. But as anybody who's been on a conference call with Alex knows, there's a bird squawking in the background and. <laughs> I was gonna ask you to tell us about your parrot, but now I've learned it's a cockatiel. But can you tell us about about the bird?
1: <laughs> the Allidade Wild Kingdom. Uh,
2: so I do have a cockatiel that hangs out uh, on the computer screen with me most of the, the day kind of perched on top looking at me uh, as I go through these uh, conversations with payers all day and uh, pounding out uh, uh, on my computer. So it is, it is true that now I think most national pairs, most of our pair partners, uh, no longer ask. Wait, does someone have a bird in the background? <laughs> um, <laughs> I will say when when if if a conversation becomes a little bit more intense, I, I will I will either move myself or the bird to another room, <laughs> so there's no there's less distractions. But. Um, it is true, Josh, that, that I, I do have a bird, and uh, and he prefers that you call him by his full name, which is Dr. Hershey Chocolate Kisses, <laughs> PhD. Um, and it is true that that almost every pair loves the bird. Oh, right.
1: I can see that as a power play, you know, like uh, something to, to get
2: them off their game.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, thanks for joining us, Alex. Thank you.
2: This is fun. Thanks, Alex.
0: Thank you.